Hello, and welcome to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles, Missouri. It is our hope that the following message will help you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. For more teachings, please visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com. Heavenly Father, we, um, we gather together this morning with a lot of the weight of the world up upon us, Lord, friends and family members that are ill, not just physically, Lord, but spiritually, whose lives are full of strife and turmoil and challenges because we live in a broken and fallen world. And Lord, we know that in the beginning you created everything beautifully and perfectly. And because of the effects of sin, everything, including the ground, suffers the curse of sin. And so, Lord, we approach your word this morning knowing that our, our minds sometimes don't fully understand your ways and that our experiences are often harder than we let on and that our brokenness goes deeper than we could ever imagine. And so we pray for your grace and your mercy and your love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. He set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again, and as was his custom, he taught them again. Some Pharisees came to test him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, He wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about, what this, about this matter. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. I usually like to begin my sermons with a light-hearted story or illustration that introduces and sets the stage for the truths that are found in the passage that I'm preparing to teach on. And I read and reread and reread this passage all week long. And I prayed to God, change the words on the page, because this is, not, 
This is not an easy topic. It's not a light topic. And I could find no lightheartedness in it. In fact, what I felt was just the opposite. I continued to feel the weight of the pain that this has caused in our world. There are many people who have walked through divorce or whose parents or some other loved one have experienced the great pain of sorrow and loss, of disappointment and anger, regret and guilt that comes along with it. Few things are more painful than divorce. The wounds that it leaves, they cut deep into a person. And we now know that it is more emotionally devastating to divorce than to experience the death of a spouse. I think John Piper says it well. Death is usually clean pain. Divorce is usually dirty pain. And he goes on to describe the pain and devastation of divorce this way. It is often long years in coming and long years in the settlement and in the adjustment. The upheaval of life is immeasurable. The sense of failure and guilt can torture the soul. Like the psalmist, night after night, a spouse falls asleep with tears. Work performance is hindered. People don't know how to relate to you anymore, and friends start to withdraw. You feel like you're wearing a big scarlet D on your chest. The loneliness is not like the loneliness of being a widow or a widower or a person who has never married. It's in a class all by itself. A sense of, devast- a, sense of a devastated future, he continues, can be all-consuming. Courtroom controversies compound personal misery. And then there's often the agonizing place of children. Parents hope against hope that the scars will not cripple the children or ruin their marriages someday. Tensions over custody and financial support deepen the wounds. And then the awkward and artificial visitation rights can lengthen the tragedy over decades. And add to all of this that it happens in America to four out of every ten married couples. I googled the word divorce and the very first result read... Missouri online divorce, $139, ready to file in 15 minutes. Every 13 seconds, there is a divorce in America. That means that in the time that it takes the average couple to recite their wedding vows to one another, there are nine divorces. The heartbreaking truth is that the statistics are only slightly better for those who claim Christ. Many believers are just as casual about divorce as the unbelieving world around them. It has become so common that many pastors ignore or avoid the subject to avoid the hurt and conflict that it brings. And I'll be honest with you, I thought hard about skipping this passage Many pastors do, but it's in there. And I made a commitment to preach through every verse of Mark. Biblical marriage is being marginalized as the world pushes further into no-fault divorce, into living together, and same-sex marriages. 
And the Bible speaks to these things, so we cannot be silent. At the end of June, a small Massachusetts city adopted an ordinance recognizing polyamory or polygamy, and that is when people who are maintaining relationships with multiple partners come together. And I have a quote from one of the city councilors, and I think that I may have set the, the thing wrong, Kim. If you could click, there's a, there's a quote from one of the city councilors. And he said, and she'll bring it up here in a second, I've consistently felt that when society and government tries to define what is or is not a family, we've historically done a very poor job of doing so. It hasn't gone well, and it's not a business that the government should be in. And all the way up to that point, I 100% agree with him. We should not look to the world to define family and marriage. We should look to the Word of God and see how it defines it. But his conclusion in this matter is to put no limit on how marriages and families ought to be defined But I would conclude that God has a lot to say on the subject, and whatever he says is what should be. And that's where this text for us this morning leads us. What does God have to say about this issue? Now, if we had a few hours, I could unpack for you all of the Bible verses that have to deal with this topic, and I could do it in a better way, maybe more pastoral way with more gentleness, but our text this morning is very direct, and so I'm interested in why was Jesus being direct? We don't have the time to look at everything. There's going to be questions that you will have that I will not answer, and I'm not doing it intentionally. It's the byproduct of trying to put five gallons of paint into a one-gallon pail, And you all didn't bring lunch, and so I'm assuming you're planning on going home for that. There are lots of rabbit trails that we could run down. But it seems to me that what Jesus is trying to do in this text is to lift marriage up very high, to restore it to a place of prominence, to remind these Pharisees who said they believed in God's Word, to remind them of the holiness of matrimony, about the sacredness of marriage. Jesus, this isn't the last word of Jesus on this topic. He says other things in other places, but this is what he says here in our text today. So I want to approach this passage with care and compassion because I know that there are people who have been affected by divorce. And it is not my desire or intention to add hurt and despair to someone that might be experiencing pain already. Life is hard, and marriage can be difficult. Historically, there have been two common, very bad approaches to this subject in the church. The first one is to follow the winds of culture, treating divorce as if it's not a big deal, that it's not a sin, that things just happen and people fall out of love, that life is complicated, and divorce is just a normal part of life. The second approach is that of the legalist, treating divorce as if it's the unpardonable sin, shaming 
and shunning, ridiculing, and restricting those who are experiencing it or who have gone through it, making them feel like second-class Christians. And rather than finding ways that we can help those who are hurting, the church has often rubbed salt in the wound, causing them to feel even more pain and isolation than they already do. I believe that there are two ways that we can respond with love and care in these situations. And I want to include these up front because the words of Jesus can sound harsh and and the way that I'm going to describe it might sound harsh, but I want you to know that that I'm saying this in love and I'm I'm trying to be cautious about it because in one hand, one of the ways that we can respond with care and love is to make sure that we don't compromise the truth of God's Word. We have to say what it says and we have to say it in love and we can't water it down. We must clearly and effectively teach why it's against God's will and then we must do everything that we can to help keep it from happening. And then the other response that we should have is to come alongside divorced persons Be there with them as they grieve the loss of a marriage and repent of their sinful parts. Then stay with them through the transition to help them find forgiveness that leads to joy and strength in serving Christ alone. Because Jesus died for all sins, including divorce. Many people have many different opinions about this topic, but frankly, I'm only interested in one person's opinion, God's. And so let's dive into the text today with all of these things in mind. Our passage this morning begins with a setup. We're told that Jesus set out to Judea, and from this point on, actually, Jesus is going to be headed to Jerusalem, to the cross. Everything that he does is leading up to that point. And he gets mobbed by the crowd, it says, again. And so he begins to teach them, Again, because that's what he came to do. In Mark chapter 2, verse 38, Jesus says, I came to preach and to teach. His message was to repent, to believe that the kingdom of God was here, that it was entered by faith in him, and that that faith in him radically changed our minds and the way that we live. And while he's teaching, some Pharisees come. And what did they come to do? Test him. They came to test him. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus was tested. In fact, the first time that Jesus was tested happened all the way back in the very first chapter of Mark in verse 13 where Satan tests Jesus. It's the same word. This word for test here is the same word that is used of Satan's testing of Jesus in the wilderness. And the testing continues from that point on. And the Pharisees join up with the Herodians to try and hatch a plot to kill Jesus. And they've been trying to get him from the get-go. The Pharisees are using an interesting tactic here to try and catch Jesus. They question Jesus, or they use a question to try and trap Jesus. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, they ask. And just like today, everyone had a different view. Based on Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, that's their response, by the way, 
It says, if a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from the house. And so most believed that they had the right to divorce. There were two prominent rabbinical schools of thought about the reasons for divorce, because that's where the real issue was. They believed that they could divorce, but they argued over the reasons that were acceptable for that divorce. Some followed Rabbi Hillel, and his interpretation was very lenient, permitting a man to divorce his wife for even the smallest of reasons, like burning the biscuits or salting the soup too much or didn't like the way that she folded his cloak or cleaned his sandals or whatever, just any displeasing thing that he found. Not enough cheese in the grilled cheese sandwich, who knows. And then there was a more strict interpretation by Rabbi Shamami, I think, S-H-I-M-M-A-I. I I think it's Shamami because it sounds funny, but it's probably pronounced differently than that. And they believed that the phrase something indecent from Deuteronomy 24 meant something of a sexual nature, some kind of sexual sin. So it was taken for granted by the Jews that it was lawful. The argument was over the grounds for divorce. So you have that debate going on between, we'll call them the liberals and the conservatives. And they're saying, Jesus, pick a side. And Jesus is going to go, I'm going to pick God's side, but we'll get to that here in a moment. You add into this that they've just crossed over into the territory that that is ruled by Herod Antipas. And you'll remember that Herod is mentioned in chapter 6. And we're told that he had married his brother's wife. And that John the Baptist was speaking against it. He denounced their marriage. And he said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias, the wife of Herod Antipas, did not like this. In fact, I'm sure that Herod didn't particularly care for it either because he had ten wives or more. But Herodias became exceedingly angry and executed a plot to have John beheaded for his preaching against her adulterous marriage. And so you have Jesus confronted by the Pharisees who are already split in a territory that is ruled by a man who has killed John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, for preaching against marriage that's against the Bible. And they're trying to trap Jesus. There's no answer, they think, there's no answer that Jesus can give that won't make somebody mad about it. No matter how he answered, Jesus was going to be wrong. And then they could use whatever it was that was said about whatever Jesus said, they could use that against him to get him in trouble or to get him killed. And so that's what they were trying to do. They were testing Jesus. They really weren't interested in learning. Their minds were already made up. They came asking, what does the law allow me to do? Or let me translate it into uh, our day. What can I get away with? Where's the loophole? 
They wanted the loophole because they didn't want to just have a loophole for some instances. They wanted to drive a semi-truck through it. They shouldn't have asked, is it lawful? They should have asked, should a man at all? What's the morality behind it? They wanted to bend but not break the law to support their behavior. They were already influenced by societal standards and they were looking to trap Jesus. Teenagers today do this, by the way. I was a youth pastor for 11 years and uh, some of them might be watching. Love you. But what they would do is I would give them rules and they would figure out every way to follow the rule without actually following the rule. And any of you with children know exactly what I'm talking about. But I'm not touching him. I'm not touching him. Right? It's like, oh. (laughs) And that's what these Pharisees were doing. What can we get away with? You'll notice that Jesus doesn't fall into their trap when he responds to them. Instead, he turns the question around on them in verse 3, asking, what did Moses command you? Now remember, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And here Jesus is asking for some positive instruction. What does the law say? What's the command? He's forcing them out of their social and societal mindset, pushing them past the debate of the two different camps of Pharisees, and he makes them focus on the Word of God, which is very instructive for us today too. Because rather than jumping into the middle of a debate, we should just point people to the Word of God. A lot of times we get caught up in all of the extra stuff when really we should just be looking at what God's Word says. So Jesus asks them, what does the Scripture say? What does the Scripture say? And Jesus asked them for a command. And immediately, in Mark's Gospel, the Pharisees lose some ground. Because they don't say Moses commanded us, they say Moses permitted. Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. In Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 19-7, which is a parallel to this passage, they were... They are recorded as saying Moses commanded. But Mark is more careful because what Moses wrote was not a command. It was a concession. In Deuteronomy 24, verses 1-4, through it outlines what they're trying to get at here. And it says, If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. And that's where they stopped. They didn't finish the quote. They didn't finish, they didn't finish the, the permission that was given, the instruction that was there. They stopped because if they stopped there, then what they already believed they could do. But you've got to keep reading to find out what is this passage actually talking about. Verse 2 in Deuteronomy chapter 24. If after leaving his house, she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her, writes her a divorce certificate, hands it to her and sends her away from his house, or if he dies, the first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she's been defiled, because that would be detestable to the Lord. You must not bring any guilt on the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. 
Moses said that a man may write her a divorce certificate. Not that he has to. It's not a command. It's not an instruction, but a concession. It's a permission that is given. For the Pharisees, it seems that divorce was not just permissible, but commanded. However, this passage does not outline the grounds for divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24. All it is doing is ensuring the safety of the woman. Because in that culture at that time, women were very vulnerable. And if they didn't have a husband, they didn't have anything. And so Moses was trying to put a procedure in place to protect the wife, to protect her from abusive husbands, to protect her from the whims and desires and and maybe a rash decision that a husband might make so she would not return to that man again. Or there was a detestable practice where a man would divorce his wife and, and she would go and marry another man and that was older and when he would die, she would take all of his possessions and then remarry her first husband so he could have everything that the other man had. In that sense, he was exploiting his wife. And Moses was trying to protect that from happening. This was not an approval. It was not an encouragement. It was a restraint. He was trying to make it more difficult for men to just dismiss their wives because they burnt the biscuits. Moses put just enough regulations around divorce so that wives would not become victims of their husbands. However, in the Pharisees' perverted interpretation of the law, they saw it as a license to mistreat their wives. So they stopped after verse 1 in Deuteronomy 24. He permitted us to give a divorce certificate. But what about adultery? Well, this certificate protected the wife from the accusation of adultery. Because it was very serious. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery. And so when the wife was divorced from her first husband who would still be alive, if she didn't have that certificate saying that he divorced her and she remarried another man, she she could be accused of adultery. And the punishment for adultery under the Old Covenant, do you remember what it was? Death. They would stone the adulterer or the adulteress to death. We see a glimpse of that in John's Gospel in chapter 7 and 8 when the woman who's caught in adultery and the, and the men of the city are getting ready to pick up stones and throw them and Jesus says, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. So she was given the certificate to protect her from this accusation of adultery. And then the New Testament gives us what's called the exception clause. No divorce except for in the case of adultery. And the reason is because we don't stone people to death anymore for breaking God's law. When they were stoned to death, that freed the living partner to remarry because death ends that relationship. But since the new covenant in Christ does not stone people for their sins, the exception was included. 
Now, I'm sure that when the Pharisees quoted Moses, they thought, we got him. We're good. That's the issue settled. We quoted Moses. Jesus would have to agree with them, right? Wrong. Jesus asked them for a command, and they gave him a permission, a concession. And Jesus told them in verse 5 that he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. Moses permitted it because men's hearts had become hard, and Jesus reasoned that the provision was made as a remedy for the willful defiance against God. The Pharisees did quote Moses, but they didn't go back far enough. Sure, Moses wrote Deuteronomy, but he also wrote Genesis. So Jesus takes them back, all the way back to the beginning, the beginning of time. And in verse 6 in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, he says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Against the provision of the law that Moses gave, because of the sclerosis of their hearts, Jesus sets God's original intention for marriage in front of them by quoting Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. The Pharisees needed to look at what God commanded and not what Moses permitted because of the sinfulness that had cursed the world. These men, these Pharisees, were looking for the escape clause and the legal fine print instead of what God's will for relationships was. And not only does Jesus go back to the beginning, He goes back to the beginning before the fall, before sin entered the world. This was not only God's intention for marriage, it was His perfect plan for it. And then once sin had entered the world, it cursed everything. Even the ground was cursed. And so everything is touched by the brokenness of sin, including relationships. And so what does the Bible say makes up a biblical marriage? Well, Jesus points out that God made mankind the way that He did for a purpose. And that purpose was marriage. That was God's original plan of creation. He made two genders, which is a surprisingly controversial thing to say in these days. He made them male and female. And then He gave the woman to the man in marriage. And in the marriage relationship, Jesus says they are no longer two, but one. And Jesus repeats Himself for effect. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And He adds a final comment about the permanency of marriage, saying, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Thus, biblical marriage, as given by God, the one who created marriage, the one who created man and woman, says that it is one man and one woman for life and nothing else. That's his ideal. That's the standard. That's how he set it up from the beginning. And contrary to what our culture teaches, marriage is not 
a man-made invention. Marriage is not just a piece of paper. According to God, it is the joining of two people in such a way that the laws and regulations of man cannot break it apart. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Man cannot separate it. When God joins something together, it's together. And the only one who can separate it is God. And that's why the end of wedding vows include this phrase, so long as we both shall live. Who controls life and death? God. So when we take our vows, standing before men and before God, we are agreeing that only God can release us from those vows. Before sin entered the world, marriage was instituted as a permanent one flesh union between a man and a woman. And Jesus drives this point home when he's with his disciples. If this statement has left you feeling uneasy and uncomfortable, you're not alone. The disciples were also shocked by Jesus' words. And I've already told you, I wished it said something else, anything else. But it's what God says. And so they questioned Him privately. In verse 10, Jesus responded by setting the highest standard for marriage. They had brought marriage very low, but Jesus held it up very high. They had forgotten what marriage was all about. They had forgotten who gave marriage in the first place. And when we read passages like this, our gut reaction is like that of the Pharisees. We begin looking for the way out. We begin looking for the loophole. Because we want it to mean less than what it says. And we want to take the sting out of the words. We want to look to God's grace and not our own sinfulness. Grace and hope are coming But I want to hold off on that for just a moment longer. Because we need to see what the ultimate meaning and representation of marriage is. In the Bible, it teaches us that that marriage is the representation of the loyal covenant love between God and His church. When Paul was talking to men and women in Ephesians chapter 5 about the duties of husbands and wives. He said that husbands should love their wives like Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. And he goes on to explain more about the responsibility and concludes in verse 32, this mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And you go, wait a second. I thought he was talking about husbands and wives and their duties to one another, but then he's saying no. That's how Christ is with the church, and because that's how Christ is with the church, 
Christ is setting the example for husbands and wives. It's not that marriage is a picture of that, but that that, what Christ is with the church, is a picture for us. It's a profound mystery. But he's talking about how Christ is with the church, displaying His loyal love. And that is what a marriage should be. A display of the loyal love of God between two people. Augustine wrote, the biblical prototype of one flesh is the relation of Christ and the church. Now there are other reasons for marriage, but this is the main one. An example to the world of how Christ loves His church. That Christ will never abandon His church or discard His church. Christ bought the church with His blood. He keeps His vows. He will never separate from those who are His no matter what. And marriage is the dramatic representation of God's relationship with His people on display for the world to see. And divorce undermines the truth of what marriage is supposed to show. Christ's love for His bride. Jesus will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He'll never abandon us. He'll never discard us. Jesus will always love us with a perfect love. He is always patient with us, always caring for us, always providing and protecting us. He will willingly sacrifice everything for us, including His life. And He will always take us back when we wander away from Him in sin. I love how one pastor said it. Divorce was not in God's plan and program at that time. He had something better for man. It may likewise be said that murder was not in His plan. But murderers have been forgiven. Divorce is a sin, but divorced people can be forgiven. We are all sinners saved by grace. It just so happens that for some, their sin is divorce. The high call of Jesus to never divorce is the declaration of the gospel to this world. It shows them that even though we might fail, even though we fall short, Christ's love for us never will. The good news of the gospel is that all those who have failed may be forgiven. Whatever your sin, however many times you have committed it, if you repent and trust in Christ, if you believe that He took your punishment on the cross so that you could be made righteous, then you can be saved. Acts 10.43, everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness for their sins. So I say, fellow sinners, whatever weight you are carrying from whatever sin you have committed, Jesus offers forgiveness and freedom. The last thing I have written on my notes is speak from the heart. And that can be dangerous, but here we go. My goal this morning was to hold marriage high. For us to recognize the relationship 
of Christ and His church that is displayed in that marriage covenant. But often, to the shame of the church, we have held sins against people that God has forgiven. And we want people to continue to feel bad for the rest of their lives. For the weight, and we want them to feel the weight of their sin where God has already lifted it. And so my encouragement to you this morning is, it's not not just about this particular issue, though that is what our text is talking about. There are many other sins that we carry the weight of each and every day. I know that I do. There's not a day that goes by that I don't think about my sin and it weighs my heart down. And I have to remind myself of the Gospel and go to Jesus and He he releases the weight of the guilt of my sin. And He can do that for you too. Whatever your sin might be, repent, confess, and believe in the forgiveness in Christ and then rest in that forgiveness knowing that He loves you deeply and your sins are washed away in His blood. You don't have to carry the weight of the guilt of your sin for the rest of your life. He can can set you free. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles. We would love it if you joined us in person. Our services are Sunday at 1045 a.m. and Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. We are located at 211 East Jasper Street in Versailles, Missouri. For more sermon recordings, visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com.